At the end of a winding Macaulay Drive sits a four-acre patch of woods, woods that every kid loved to wander into and every parent cautioned their children to stay out of. Connected to the backside is the Blue Beacon Truck Wash and Truck Stop, a place for truckers to stop into off of I-40, a place to sit down for a warm meal, a place to clean up, a moment for them to get out of their calves and stretch their legs after 10 hours on the road. This is what gave parents their nightmares of the same wooded area. Anyone could come in off a major highway, stop at the truck stop, see kids playing in the woods unattended, and see easy targets. There is evil in the world, and in 1993, the media was beginning to be able to offer news of the world at an alarming rate. Kids were being kidnapped for no apparent reason, murdered for sport and pleasure, a parent's worst nightmare. For six parents, they started living that nightmare on May 5th, 1993. Three eight-year-old boys went out riding through the neighborhood off to play until the sun went down. Still a common practice, even with the influx of news of the evil happenings to children. Stevie, Michael, Christopher rode off on their bikes, never to be seen again. The world watched a criminal case unfold. HBO filmed for an entire year, providing one of the most groundbreaking true crime documentaries of all time because the police had set their sights on three teenage boys who rocked out to Metallica, wore black, were awkward and unintelligent, and surely capable of brutally murdering three boys and what the media and police called a satanic ritual. Now we know that investigators didn't follow protocol. They didn't investigate this crime. They railroaded three boys and turned their words into what they needed to fit a confession to the crime. The West Memphis Three provide one of the biggest black marks on our criminal justice history in the last century. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight we take on one of the most controversial true crime cases. We are not here to solve a case that has been left unsolved for nearly 30 years. The three teenage boys that were convicted of the crime they didn't commit now walk amongst the free thanks to some fast words and some strategic backpedaling. But out there walks a predator who flipped the town of West Memphis on its head and left heartache in the homes of Michael Moore, Stevie Branch, and Christopher Byers. Stick with the librarian as we try to make sense of it all and look at this case with fresh sets of eyes. This is the case of the West Memphis Three. Warning, this episode contains graphic detail of murder, mutilation, and adult language. Listener's discretion is advised. If you feel any of this may be too much for you, please skip this episode or have someone listen with you or for you. 
Good evening, my true crime nerds. I want to do a little bit of house cleaning before we get started. Remember, time is running out to pick up the limited edition true crime librarian gear. The link is in the description of this episode, either on your podcast listening platform or in the description of the YouTube video and can always be found on my social media. Be sure to subscribe, and if you're listening in on my YouTube channel, please be sure to like, subscribe, and ring that notification bell so you never miss an upload. If you aren't following me on social media, please go do so now so that you never miss an update with the case or with the librarian. Last, let's give out some true crime nerd love to Leah Knott, Crystal Olette, Jesse Wilson, Matthew Pike, and Cara Jabose. If you'd like to make it on the list of true crime nerd love, all I ask is that you leave a review or recommendation about the show. Make sure to tag the show with the hashtag the true crime librarian so that I can see your take on this podcast. Enough of this. Let's get to what you all came here for. The true crime. In 1993, three eight-year-old boys disappeared from under the noses of their parents. Dana Moore, Michael Moore's mother, said that she last seen the boys on their bicycles riding through the neighborhood of North 14th Street. Christopher Byers had ridden his skateboard, but eventually due to the inability to keep up with his friends, Michael and Stevie, he hopped onto the back and the three rode off. At the end of Macaulay Drive, it deadens into a four-acre wooded area known as Robin Hood Hills. Kids knew the woods calling it simply Robin Hood, even saying there was a clubhouse back in there. Other boys in the neighborhood said that back in the woods across the pipe bridge was the clubhouse, one that Michael, Christopher, and Stevie had gone to more than once. Stevie left his house around 3.30 in the afternoon of May 5th of 1993. He was told to be home by 4.30 as Pam, his mother, had to go to work. Terry Hobbs, his stepfather, had to take Pam to work at the Catfish Island. She had had a DUI and at this time she didn't have a license and depended on her husband to drive her back and forth to work. This meant that Stevie and his little sister Amanda had to go with them. But as 4.30 came and went, Pam left with Terry and Amanda, not knowing where her son had gone. John Mark Byers had a lot going on this afternoon. He pulled his truck into the drive of his home at 3.08 p.m. Christopher, his stepson, was considered too young to have a house key, so he was instructed that if he got home from school, which was less than a four-minute walk, he was to wait under the carport for someone to come home had nobody been there. Byers said that he was at his home until 3.50 when he needed to take his eldest stepson, Randy, to court. Randy had seen an auto accident and was slated to testify. So once he dropped Randy off at Municipal Court, he headed to Memphis to pick up Melissa, his wife, and then he headed back home. As he dropped his wife off and went to go pick up Randy from the courthouse, he saw Christopher riding down the street on his skateboard. But instead of him standing and pushing off for momentum, he was on the board on his belly, rolling down the road in the middle of the street, an act that is as dangerous as it sounds. So John Mark picked up Christopher, drove him back to the house where John Mark 
admits to giving him, quote, two or three licks. This was to show the importance and how dangerous it was to be doing the activity that Christopher was doing. And so John Mark told him after he received these licks to clean up the carport before he could go and do anything else. And John Mark, he left and went to pick up Randy. When he returned home, Christopher was nowhere to be found. Neither was Michael or Stevie. But their parents had yet to discover what this meant fully. In 1993, it was still considered relatively safe for eight-year-old boys and girls to ride through the neighborhoods only to show up back home by dinner time. Dinner generally was accepted as the time that everyone would be coming home from work. Children no longer played in the streets and the town surrounding them virtually shut down. In West Memphis, after this day, children would not have such long leashes. When it came to playing outside, the small town's eyes were going to be opened abruptly and gruesomely to the outside world. At 8 p.m. the night of the 5th of May, John Mark Byers, Christopher Byers, adopted or stepfather, however you want to say this, he called West Memphis PD and reported his son missing. At 8.10 p.m., Officer Meeks, she shows up to talk with John Mark. He gives the description of Christopher, a white male, eight years old, approximately four foot tall, about 52 pounds in weight, light brown hair, brown eyes, and he was last seen wearing blue jeans, dark shoes, and a long sleeve white shirt. This was John Mark's description and it was taken into the report by Officer Meeks. She's, she's quoted to saying that she kind of drove around the neighborhood on that side of town and was looking for Christopher Byers. It's unknown to them at this point that there's two other eight-year-old boys missing. But at this time, Meeks is only looking for Christopher. 8.42 p.m., a call comes through dispatch that seemingly could have been overlooked as a call unrelated, demanding attention for the officers who should have been concerned, not only with the fact that they have them, a missing child, but then this call comes in, but it does play a bigger role in this case later. Dispatch sent out over the radio a call, Bojangles, blackmail towards Delta, bleeding. Officer Meeks, who's in the area, was just finishing up with a license plate call, and she headed over to Bojangles, which is a chicken fast food restaurant. It's located on North Missouri, and instead of going in, she pulled through the drive-thru and spoke with the employees. And this is where they told her, you know, um, about 10, 20 minutes before she arrived, there is a black male about late 20s, approximately 5 foot 11, very thin, with a blue cast with white Velcro straps on his right arm, wearing a blue denim sleeveless shirt, black shoes, black thin warm-up pants. He appeared to be disoriented and bleeding. They told Meeks that he had just left the restaurant and he went in direction of the dumpsters. So she drove out and she went to look for this man. And she only spent like three minutes looking for this person. Eventually, this mystery man, he's going to be labeled as Mr. Bojangles. So if you know anything about the case, 
you're going to recognize that name because it is something that's talked about frequently through the investigation, through the trial, and into conspiracy theories later. Now, because she pulled in through the drive-thru instead of coming in, we can go ahead and mark that as failure number one in this investigation. Had she gone in, she would have been welcomed by this bloody, muddy mess that he had left in the restaurant. But instead, she just went through the drive-thru. And then she only looked for him for a few minutes afterwards. So you have misstep number one and now misstep number two. You have a missing eight-year-old boy. You have a man who came in covered in blood and a combination of mud. When you couple this together, it raises more alarm than it did for the officer this time. Of course, we always say, and I always do this and I always reiterate, this is hindsight, right? However, the same officer that took the missing child report and description also arrived on scene to the fast food restaurant where management was highly concerned with the activity of this man. There should have been a connection because Mr. Bojangles or Bojangles Chicken Restaurant was within blocks of Christopher Byers' neighborhood. At 9 p.m., West Memphis PD received two more phone calls, and these were to report two more boys missing. Dana Moore, Michael Moore's mother, had called and reported her son missing. Pamela Hobbs was still at work at Catfish Island when her husband, Terry, and their young daughter, Amanda, pulled up and Stevie was not in the vehicle. Now, I've seen where reports that Pamela says something about Terry coming into the restaurant and using the payphone that was just inside the door and made a phone call before he went in to get Pam and tell her, you know, Stevie didn't come home. And we've been looking for him since we took you to work. And so she calls West Memphis PD from Catfish Island. So two more boys are reported missing. The description of Michael Moore is he's a white male, eight years old, approximately four foot tall, weighs about 60 pounds, brown hair, blue eyes. He was last seen wearing blue pants and a Boy Scout uniform shirt and cap with tennis shoes. This missing person report was taken from Dana at their home on East Barton. Now here's the thing. Dana Moore and her husband Todd and Michael lived across the street from the buyers. So these boys would play together frequently. However, Christopher Byers would be known to say that Stevie Branch, Pamela Hobbs and Harry Hobbs' son, was more of his best friend. The description of Stevie Branch was white male, eight years old, four foot, two inches tall, about 60 pounds, blonde hair, blue eyes. He was last seen wearing blue jeans, white t-shirt, and he was riding a 20-inch black renegade bicycle. This was logged at Catfish Island at 9.25 p.m. According to police logs, or lack thereof, those officers on duty that night continued driving through the neighborhood looking for branch buyers and more. Not only do we have West Memphis PD out, but now we have neighboring families. We have parents. We have friends of the, you know, parents. We have a community 
outside at nearly 10 o'clock at night looking for three missing boys. And it seems just as a consensus that they all take off in the direction of Macaulay Drive where the pavement ends with a barricade and just simply walking around and into Robin Hood Hills. Parents had gathered at this dead end and they set off into the woods looking and hollering for the boys. But it's West Memphis, Arkansas. At this point, they're seeing very humid weather, very hot weather. And with that comes mosquito. They lie low in overgrown areas and shaded where that moisture stays in the air. And that's exactly what Robin Hood Hills is. It's just a breeding ground for mosquitoes. So they weren't in the woods long looking for these boys. Parents feared what could come of this. And neighbors feared how this could change their community. So finding the boys was priority number one. But nobody seems to have looked harder than John Mark Byers. John Mark and his son Randy, they continued to look long after the crowd dwindled down. And John Mark and his son later say they made it to what's called the 10 Mile Bayou. It's a diversion creek that runs. So the rainwater that used to drain into the Mississippi River that no longer did thanks to the levees had to have somewhere to go and there was flooding issues in the neighborhood in West Memphis. So this 10-mile man-made bayou ran through Robin Hood Hills. And so there is concern. Did the boys, did they fall into this bayou? Did they drown? Were they swimming? What, you know, what's going on? Where, where are these three little boys? Many volunteers, like I said, they were driven out thanks to the mosquitoes, but none of this was ever organized by any member of West Memphis police. Chief Gitchell, he would not set up anything through his offices until the following day. On May 6, 1993, at 6 a.m., Gary Gitchell announced that, that three West Memphis boys were missing and that he was going to direct search efforts at this point. Now, 6 a.m., we've now got law enforcement involved. Those volunteers that were out the night before, they're back. Family has come out. And then there's more. Like, there's more people that show up to help find these boys. And so law enforcement now is leading this. And the heaviest of the search efforts occurred in Robin Hood Hills, where it is believed that the boys were last seen. There's multiple reports that come in that says they either were seen at the end of Macaulay Drive or they were seen at another entrance point. It doesn't matter. In the end, they seem to all correspond with this wooded area. And at some point during this search, volunteers line up shoulder to shoulder and they start on the north end of the woods closest to I-40 and the Beacon Truck Wash and Truck Stop. And they walk shoulder to shoulder through this until they emerged on the other side. This also means they had to get across this 10-mile bayou. They came out the other side. No one reported seeing the boys, their bikes, the clothing, nothing. 
This caused a great amount of searchers to abandon the wooded area and start looking elsewhere in the neighborhood for the boys. Steve Jones, a Crichton County juvenile officer, he kind of stayed behind. And he was around the 10 mile bayou around where this pipe bridge lies. And he was kind of looking just in the creek, see if they missed anything. And at about 1.45 p.m., he looked down from a steep side on the gully and he spotted something in the water. It was a child's black tennis shoe with no laces. Sergeant Mike Allen of West Memphis Police Department rushed to Jones' location. It was about 60 yards south of the interstate, and this black laceless shoe was just floating along in the bayou. Now, we talked about this. We had volunteers shoulder to shoulder. They had to cross that bayou at some point. But how was the shoe missed? don't think it was. Listen to the following and you can, you know, make your own assumptions. Alan was dressed in slacks and a white dress shirt and dress shoes, and he decided he was going to enter the water because this water, if you think about like, um, like hot chocolate or hot or chocolate milk, you know, that murky, you don't see anything below the surface. And that's what this water looked like. There was not like you couldn't see two inches below. It was that murky. And so he decided to get in because he couldn't see. And he stepped off into it and he lifted his leg. And the way that it is described is there's this sucking sound of his shoe being released by the mud. Then bubbles started floating up. And then there was a reluctant sound and slowly rise the body of a young white male. He was nude with his wrists tied to his ankles with shoestrings. Michael Moore's body was the first to be found. Allen states he then dropped into the water using his hands along with his feet and he guided through the bottom of this bayou until he came across a stick that was unnaturally sticking up in the water, like it was deliberately shoved into the bed of this creek. And when he pulled it from the mud and lifted it out of the water, tied around it or wrapped around it in a weird kind of fashion was a child's white t-shirt. Michael Moore's body was lifted out of the water and placed on the embankment. It is described that he was hogtied. But this is not the same manner as we know what a hog tie is. His right wrist was tied to his right ankle. His left wrist was tied to his left ankle. His body showed signs of being beaten. Investigators looked at the way he was tied and the fact that his genitals were exposed not only from the front but also from the back in an unnatural way of restraining someone. To investigators, it suggested that this crime was sexual in nature. Michael's pants and Cub Scout shirt were found shortly after, stuck in around a stick and into the mud, along with two more pairs of shoes. Further down the stream, Alan's hand found the form of another body. Stevie Branch was tied exactly like Michael Moore. Shoelaces that were removed from their shoes provided the ligature. He showed signs of being beaten 
His left side of his face showed brutal markings, and unlike Michael, it looked as though Stevie's face had been bitten. Not far from Stevie's body, Alan found the body of Christopher Byers. Christopher was also naked and tied as the others were. But Christopher had suffered injuries that neither of the boys did. Christopher was castrated, and the skin around the shaft of his penis was missing along with the head. He had been beaten and then mutilated. Christopher Byers' body seemed to bear the worst of the three. Not 10 feet away from where the boys were found, on the pipe bridge, this makeshift pipe, Michael Moore and Stevie Branch's bicycles were found, one on each side of the pipe. All three boys were removed from the cool water and exposed to the humid Arkansas air. This rapidly sped up decomposition. As the water was later said to be about 60 degrees, the air outside was rising into the mid-80s at this point. And so this is going to make it difficult for the coroner. He is not going to be able to determine a time of death because not only have they been removed from a cool source into a humid source and decomposition is rapidly happening, but it was nearly two hours after Michael Moore's body was found that someone in the investigation at this scene decided we need to call the coroner. Two hours. So we can go ahead and chalk this up as another mess up. Once the coroner arrived, the level of lividity, and remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago, it's the, the bluish purplish color that happens when a body lays in a position and the blood pulls. So if you're laying on, you know, face down, lividity is going to show on your stomach and chest and thighs in the anterior position. If you're on your back, it's going to show up on your back, your buttocks, the back of your thighs and your calves. That's your posterior position. So we have them that has a little bit of lividity, but it does not point to where in which way the children lied um, after being murdered. Because once they were lifted from the water and onto the embankment, things started to shift to that being a hindrance when investigating. The other problem was due to the nature or due to the way they were hogtied, it was hard to assess rigor. So the way rigor mortis works, just, you know, a sidetrack here, it does not set in immediately after death. It takes hours, six to eight, and you are almost fully considered fully rigor. And then once you hit the max point, the body starts to decline in the other way. So rigor starts to come back out. Without knowing what stage of rigor mortis these kids are in due to the way they were bound, this also causes a hindrance in this investigation for the coroner. There was no infestation of, of larva, of flies. There was nothing. However, because they set on that embankment in that warm temperature, by the time the coroner was on scene, 
there was an infestation starting in their eyes, noses, and mouths. The coroner would pronounce all three boys dead at 4 p.m. May 6, 1993. At this point, Gitchell had ordered that the bayou be sandbagged upstream so that they could pump everything below the sandbagging out. This was in hopes to find the missing underwear that was never recovered. There was two pairs of un underwear that was never found stuck in the mud with these sticks. He also hoped that he could find the missing testicles to Christopher. Maybe a murder weapon? They weren't really sure, but they were hoping that by clearing this water, there may be more answers. Unfortunately, none of those things were found once the water was pumped out. Back at the clearing at the end of Macaulay, behind the dead-end barrier, were people in the community, were the mother and father of each child. And when Gitchell walked out of the wooded area and people could see his face, everyone knew what had happened, even though he hadn't said anything yet. When he told Terry, Terry walked up to try and meet him and, you know, Gitchell told him you know, he's gone. Pam Hobbs fainted and Terry Hobbs collapsed to the ground and began crying. When he walked over to the buyers, Melissa fell to the ground screaming. She was crying and kicking. And Mark Byers shook his head in complete disbelief to what he was hearing Gitcher tell him. It's unclear of how far he went into the details of what the bodies look like with John Mark, but there was an obvious connection between the two, and it offered a perfect moment for a picture to headline in the West Memphis Evening Times. On the front page of the next morning, John Mark is standing next to Gitchell. His arm is slung over the police chief's shoulder as they both hang their heads in disbelief of, you know, what had just been discovered. Mark Byers later tells a reporter that he couldn't understand because he had been out searching for those boys till 4.30 in the morning on the evening, early morning of May 5th into May 6th. Randy and Mark Byers, they both claim they were out together till approximately midnight before Randy had to go home and go to bed because he had to go to school the next morning. John Mark continued, there is a point where Randy says he was in Robin Hood Hills and it was him and a buddy and they heard some splashing and then they, when they heard the second splash, they called out if somebody was there, but nobody ever came back. And then they claimed to have heard a gunshot. And this is the time when they climbed out of the wooded area and John Mark and Randy would go back later on the north side close to the Beacon truck wash. Now, John Mark is telling reporters, you know, I was out searching for them till 4.30 in the morning and I walked within 10 to 15 feet of where they were found. To some people, this simple statement sounds far more incriminating, if you want to call it that, than it really is, okay? There, that's the thing with this case. You have no idea. There's no definitive evidence saying, you know, John Doe down the road did it. 
or it was John and his buddies, or there's nothing there. There, there's just not, there's no DNA. There's trace semen found in the underwear of one of the boys, but whatever comes of that, we'll talk about it in the investigation, but I'm going to promise you, you're not going to get any answers from it. You, you don't have an obvious sign of what caused their death. You have new children tied in an unnatural manner. And so you suspect that there was sexual assault, but there's no definitive proof because there's no obvious injury. So why, why these three boys? Why that day? Why, why do to them what, what was done? Why, why was one only castrated? Why wasn't the other two? You know, you're con you can say why all day long. You can question everything. But if you're going to question one, you have to question it all. But to others, they did not take John Mark's statement as anything incriminating. It was, it was eventually just looked over and nobody ever went back to it until afterwards where we had an entire country deconstructing this investigation word by word. A black hearse eventually pulled up to the Blue Beacon truck wash where it backed as far into the wooded area or as close to where the wooded area began for law enforcement to bring three body bags out of the woods. At 9 p.m. on May 6, 1993, Marty King, the restaurant manager from Bojangles, he called in and requested to talk to officers especially after the light of, of the news from what had occurred in their community earlier that day. Detective Sergeant Allen and Detective Ridge responded to this phone call and they both went inside the establishment, thank God, hallelujah, and they spoke with the manager, Marty. And he related some of the same things that he had told Officer Meeks the night before. You know, we had a black male in his late 20s. He was wearing this blue cast on his right arm with white stripes. He stumbled into the restaurant. He headed down the short corridor to the bathrooms and he entered into the woman's restroom, at which time they don't know what really went on in there. However, he was described as being muddy in the same fashion that the two detectives were. They came in not change from what had happened down in the bayou to talk to Marty King at 9 p.m. that night. They were still wearing muddy slacks, dirty dress shoes, mud, water soaked into their white dress shirts. And the manager said, he looked like you look right now. Only he had this cast. He was black. He was thin. He was covered in blood and he was disoriented. But there was no obvious smell of alcohol. So possibly under the influence of illicit drugs, maybe medication. Maybe he was in the middle of a broken psyche. I don't know. All they knew was he was disoriented and he went into the woman's restroom. And so when he leaves the restroom and he leaves the establishment just before Officer Meeks can get on scene... He heads towards the dumpsters and disappears into the night. Nobody ever sees him. 
But what he leaves behind is far more interesting than where he went. Okay. For now. They go into the restroom. It's covered in blood. It's covered in mud. And it's covered in feces. Now, someone playing with defecations, especially their own, in a way where they smear it everywhere, that typically will suggest to investigators, to those in the psychiatric field, that the person who had done this was currently going through some kind of mental or psychic break. Something had caused them to disassociate from reality and there was no clear pattern of thinking. So the officers, they're looking at this huge mess all over the place and then there's an entire roll of toilet paper soaked through with blood and then left on the back of the toilet was a pair of sunglasses. So... I've looked and considering there was nearly 24 hours in between the time the first call came through about this Mr. Bojangles to the point that Detective Allen and Detective Ridge were on scene, whether or not there was any attempt to clean up the corridor or the bathroom. Being a true crime nerd and, and person who can't live having unanswered questions, I dove into this park far more than I should have. And y'all are already aware of the <laughs> tremendous hurdles that came my way with the very beginning of this case. I, I, When I'm going through, I write questions down that I need an answer to. And this was one. Was there any kind of cleanup attempt done? And I don't, you know, you can watch the documentary. You can watch, there's actually several documentaries. You can watch them all. You can read the books, you can search the internet, but it's never clear or never stated factually that the employees at Bojangles attempted to clean. So let's just cross fingers, hope they didn't, because Detective Ridge was able to scrape away some samples off the north wall inside the women's bathroom above the toilet. He was able to take a scraping from inside of the door to the women's bathroom and down the hall, that little corridor that leads from the sitting sitting area of the restaurant into the bathrooms, he was able to get a scraping from there as well. So DNA, right? Hallelujah. Great. Awesome. That's the last you hear of that, okay? Now, they do later learn from a door-to-door -door questioning that was going on in the neighborhood. There was a gentleman named Bill H. He, you know, Let's respect some privacy. He said he didn't see anything. However, he knew Mrs. C, who worked over at Schneider Truck Lines, and she worked the evening shift, and she said that a driver saw a man with blood all over him Wednesday night. So investigators go over to the Blue Beacon Truck Wash, and they find out that there were three trucks from Schneider Truck Lines that had visited the Blue Beacon truck wash after 7 p.m. on the night of May 5th. So what comes of that, right? Nothing. Yeah. 
spine is freaking blown. Where okay, so we know 48 hours into a murder investigation, for every hour that follows, you're less likely to solve the crime, right? We all know it. Time is of the essence. You know, figure your shit out. Ask the questions. Follow your protocol. Why are we doing this half-ass? Why are we not asking questions? Why are we not getting names? Why is there no follow-up? What, what about everybody who volunteered to search? Did we talk to everybody? Was there anybody out there that was acting strange as at any point during, during the searches? You know, the closer you got to the bayou, was somebody getting a little anxious, nervous, talking too much? What do you know? This is what we know. Right here. We know exactly what they knew. Not very much, right? Yeah. At this point, just knowing what you know now, I hope your blood is as boiling as mine is because it pisses me off. We, we need people to do their jobs. Point blank. So come May 7th of 1993, the teachers from the boys' elementary school held a meeting. How are they going to break the news to these kids' peers? How are they going to handle what these children already knew coming into school? There were, this was something that there's not a, you know, a protocol for. Not yet. Unfortunately, there is now. But at this time, they're flying by the seat of their pants. Well, we also have parents. They're struggling to find a way to bury their sons. None of these families had outrageous amounts of money. They, there was no money set back for them to dip into for this. And the community, they come together and they do a fantastic job supporting these families. And they raised $25,000 to help alleviate some of that burden that came with saying goodbye to their children. This cannot be easy. I will not sit here and say I understand because I've never lost a child. What I can say is I can imagine how hard it is and then times that by 100 and I might get close to what these, these families had to endure during this time. Now, outside of the $25,000 that was raised for the funerals, the community raised approximately $35,000 in a reward fund to establish and hope that somebody could provide information leading to the arrest and conviction of a person or persons who committed the, the murders. On May 10th, the newspapers were on day five of running the story on their front page. This day in particular had the headline revealing that West Memphis PD still confident they'll solve the murders. We're five days. We're well outside our 48 hour range. If there's not a credible lead at this point and you're, you're saying you're confident that you're gonna solve something, to me, you're already grasping at straws, right? You don't have a lead. You don't have a suspect. You have not put out to the public in any form of a statement, whether it be, you know, a televised briefing 
or through reports in the newspaper or whatever. There's nothing that was ever set out that said that they had a suspect in mind or that they had a new lead. However, five days in, we're still confident we're going to do this, guys. No. I, looking at this crime scene, looking at what I just described to you, that's all they had. Luminol testing came back with nothing. Nothing. There was a partial print, partial footprints. They casted all of that, but it's not leading you anywhere. This this is the worst kind of crime scene you can have. You know, elements played a huge part. The water washed away most evidence of what happened to these poor kids. We are losing time, which means we're losing our, our perpetrator. The more time it takes us to figure out who did it, the longer he or she or they have to get the hell away from this place, right? But Gitchell, he's ever confident and he's hell-bent on comforting his community. The one he's supposed to keep safe. And the things he would say in the next few days would reveal the direction his mind was heading. He would say things like gang affiliation, cult activities, ritualistic activities, Hold on to that because this is a key into how this is going to unfold. It wasn't long after this slips that people in West Memphis in that community start misremembering. And that's what I'm going to call it. Because had there been, I say this and I hate to raise doubt, but had there been something odd going on in that in the woods had they seen you know people coming and going frequently you think there would be already have word of of these things prior to the murders right because if you've got a group of people constantly going in and out of this woods that are you know teenagers or young adults or old adults whatever you know, old adults. Yeah, I totally fit that one. But you would find that activity suspicious without the fact that there was a crime committed, right? So I'm going to call this misremembering because it took Gitchell saying things like this for the community to step up and say, oh, hey, I heard that um, in, in Robin Hood Hills, there's some sacrifices going on. Okay. What else do you know? Well, you know, I think there's some Satanism going on, chanting uh, to the devil, worshiping, you know, Satan. Okay. And, and there seems to be a big following of one person in particular. Okay. Well, what's his name? Right. You're on the same page as me, right? That sounds plausible. The, the black male who was disoriented in Bojangles Chicken Restaurant? Yeah. No. No connection, right? We have three boys brutally beaten, bound, and Lord only knows what else. But that black guy, he didn't do it. Right? So West Memphis PD, they start to round up the usuals. 
someone suggested that the way the boys were tied up were very similar to the way American soldiers were in during the Vietnam War after they'd been captured. Therefore, police start asking around to hospitals and clinics Add anybody who was a veteran come in recently and be treated with injuries to their penis. And that leads them nowhere. Due to the lack of blood in the area where the boys were found, it's speculated that the boys may have been abducted, taken somewhere, tortured, killed, and then disposed of in the 10-mile bayou. So they start calling carpet cleaners. Anybody in the area been called to go and clean up bloodstains of any sort? No? Okay. They investigate a man that once had been arrested for performing sex change operations without a medical license. They, they suspect that due to the trauma to Christopher Byers' genitals, this was, I don't suggest anybody go and have any kind of medical procedure done without the licensed professional. But, and, and you know, this raises question. But in 1993, you know, we're, we're damn near 30 years away from that, right? Um, things like this were going on underground. People were forced to conceal how they felt in 1993. And so in order to feel complete, they had to find somebody, whether they were licensed or not, that would help them with this. So technically, this person... He was arrested for mutilating another person. However, it led them nowhere. So they start compiling descriptions of vagrants, of strangers, of mental patients, of loiters, of hobos. At this point, due to the lack of evidence, you know, where else are we going to start? However, I do suggest this should have been started May 6th at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And not, you know, five days later, six days later. They investigate a man who had made, quote, vulgar remarks to two girls. They look at a man that once drilled holes in his apartment walls to spy on his neighbors. They looked at those that had been re reported for torturing or killing animals. Now, let's go back to what we know all as nerds, the McDonald triad. That's what we're looking at, right? has to have one of these three key points. Do y'all remember them? Harming animals, peeing the bed, and starting fires, playing with fire. So they're, okay, let's talk to everybody who's ever been known to, reported of, you know, arrested for hurting animals. And how about we just go in, throw in those who have confided about having fantasies involving murder. We'll even chunk in the good old child porn addiction. None of these pan out. And you would think with each fell lead that you would see the West Memphis PD come together, reconfigure their plan of attack, but instead they continue to grasp at straws. Oh, frustrating, frustrating. So there's no genuine, genuine plan of attack. You know, Gitchell, he's, he's been quoted as talking about Satanism, you know, gang-related affiliations. We're, I mean, he planted the seed. This is only going to go one direction from that. 
there were reports flowing in from the community. They're just as eager figuring out who did this and bringing them to justice so that that level of fear can be reduced once we put a name and a face with what, you know, with the killing of these boys and let's get them behind bars, put them on death row, whatever, right? We want swift and quick justice. But sometimes that does not lead to the appropriate justice. Sometimes we put people behind bars that never had a hair in what had happened that they were convicted for. So that's a problem that we are starting to see in this investigation. It's a pattern. Reports start flowing in. You know, one woman, she reported at seeing all three boys entering Robin Hood Hills from the Blue Beacon side around 6 or 6.30. Well, this completely obliterates anybody else's report that they seen them on the Macaulay side entering where most children entered into this wooded area. So we have contradicting reports, right? That does not help. And for each day, this investigation goes on and we receive these reports of somebody suddenly remembering what happened three days ago, four days ago, six days ago, 10 days ago. You have to remember that what you could have reported five minutes after you know, this incident occurred, it only becomes less and less detailed as time goes on. And eventually you convince yourself that you remember it this way and not the way you actually saw it occur. When I was in one of my college courses for um, psychology, short little side story here, somebody walked into class, talked to the professor, walked out, and five minutes later, class began, and she was like, write down a description of the kid who just came in here. And there was probably 1% of us in class, I was not one of them, I say us, wasn't me, that could accurately describe who had just walked into that classroom. So we were all sitting there. We all saw him enter the classroom. We all saw him talk to the professor. We watched him walk out. Five minutes later, we have no freaking idea what he looked like. None. That gets worse as time goes on. If you ask me today to describe that kid, pfft, he's a boy. That's all I can say. You know, it's, it's horrible. And that muddies investigations so much. It, it, it puts so much false information out there. And when you have a police force that is grasping at straws instead of sitting down, briefing, and talking about what we got, what did we send off? Did we send off the blood scrapings? Have we, you know, submitted the fingerprints, that, the partial prints we had? How about the foot, the partial footprints? What have we done? You know, they are just like, we got to put a name with a face. And somebody's got to go down for this. This can't go cold right? Well, after a week or so, 
After the murders, detectives learn about two men who were in West Memphis and up until four days after the bodies were found, they left. They hightailed it out of there and they popped up in Oceanside, California. These two men were Chris Morgan and Brian Holland. West Memphis BD discovered that Chris Morgan's parents and girlfriend lived in West Memphis and very close to where the murders occurred. And Morgan had driven an ice cream truck at one point, and the route he was on was through the neighborhood of the victims. So detectives in Oceanside get a phone call from West Memphis. They go and pick up Chris Morgan and Brian Holland, and they bring them in. There's interviewing, there's fingerprinting, and polygraphs performed, along with photographs. Chris Morgan said that the way he found out about the murders of the three boys was from his father on his way to work one day. He later states that he read about the homicides in the newspaper as well. Chris continues to state that him and his friend Bobby D'Angelo talked about the homicides. Eventually, Morgan says he went to the home of Stevie Branch with Bobby because, quote, because Bobby was close to the family. Morgan said that he had heard that the boy's arms were cut off and that they had been molested. Morgan said that he had told D'Angelo about some of the details him and his father had discussed. And upon hearing that, D'Angelo starts freaking out. Morgan said that he used to, you know, drive an ice cream truck and had met all three boys, stating he met Stevie about three years ago, putting him about five years old. He spoke about his residence in Memphis. He had four roommates, Brian Holland, Frankie Harris, David Nessler, and Richard Christofori. Probably butchered that, and I apologize. But he was very adamant that... He was in Memphis at the time of the murders. Chris Morgan was asked about how he obtained some of the knowledge of the murders. And we're going to see this question repeated because those who are not telling the truth will change that response just a little bit every time because they can't, with all the questions they've already answered from the last time you asked that question, they can't remember what they had just told you, so it's altered slightly. And so Morgan, he, he holds true mostly to what he said on how he learned of the, pa- of the boys. You know, he said he read it in the paper and by word of mouth from D'Angelo, his father and the discussion they had was not mentioned during the second response to this answer. Morgan does volunteer a little bit of information to to the detectives that he had met Stevie's family a few times in the past, although he did describe the relationship with them as very, quote, casual acquaintances, end quote. He says the last time he spoke with Stevie was approximately one and a half years ago while working the ice cream truck route. He stated the reason that he went over to Stevie's house with Bobby was he wanted to visit the family and he joined to, quote, show remorse, end quote, and to help them in any way. He was, quote, 
trying to be nice, the kid did get killed, end quote. Morgan was asked about his sexual preferences. He was asked if he was a homosexual. This in relationship to the way that the boys were displayed and the possibility of there being a sexual assault. Now, we'll go over the autopsy a little more and it becomes questionable of whether or not assault occurred. But at this time, the, the way he is questioned is there's a definitive sexual assault on these children. And his response is an immediate no, but he delivers it so quickly and, and almost harsh that you can't help but wonder what he's hiding. Because he, you know, most people are like, no, you know, even then, are you homosexual? No, no, I'm really not. Or yeah, you know, that's a little bit more difficult to say, to be open with in 1993. So I would feel like those who are would be more offended by being accused of being homosexual. And so this, to me, reading this transcript came off questionable. Whether or not he, he ever came to terms with what he was, at this point, it's his behavior is coming, is becoming quite radical. Morgan was asked about his activities on May 5th, 1993, the day of the abduction and murder of the three boys. We assume the murder occurred on May 5th. His response was with typical things. You know, he got up, he had trouble finding a work shirt, had to call and ask if it was okay that he went to work without his assigned t-shirt or whatever. He ended up going to work without one then he did something I found very odd. He plopped his foot up on the interrogation room table and showed off his new shoes to investigators, saying these ones that he has on, he's only had for about a month and a half, saying when he was visiting Phoenix, Arizona about a month ago, he threw away the Converse shoes he had. Now, I'm not really sure of what kind of sole print was lifted with these partial footprints um, from the bayou, but I can't help but wonder if it is a converse tread. I don't know. That's, it just, it came across as odd for him to point out, look at my new shoes. I don't give a shit about your shoes, you know, but he did. He had to point this out. And at this point, when, when they're questioning Chris Morgan and Brian Holland, it's May 18th, 1993, 13 days after the murder and nine days after they skipped town. And that's what we're calling it, skip town. But it's still, this is odd. It doesn't line up with the fact that, you know, two months ago, he threw away his Converse shoes, right? But mentioning that there is a timeline, to me, it's it's ringing bells and alarms in my head. Why was that important right now? Why was that important while we were talking about your activities of the day of May 5th? Why do you feel the need that I need to know you have brand new shoes on? You know, you know I have a lot of questions. I, if I was sitting across from him, those would be you know, just going off in my head real loud, probably unable to ignore them. And I might even have asked the question of why the hell do I care about your shoes? 
Why is it important to you? But nobody asked anything. Brian Holland, he was up next for his interview while Chris Morgan went and had a polygraph test done. Now, by the time Brian got up there, it's late into the evening of May 18th. And Holland told investigators that him and Morgan had been planning on moving to California for about a month. Holland was asked about his sexual orientation and if he had ever had any sexual tendencies with or toward Morgan. And Holland answers very casually. He, you know, I'm heterosexual. But then he provides information just to keep his mouth going. And he says... Morgan had had a homosexual experience with a man named Patrick about a year and a half to two years ago. It is reported or it is gossip that the two had oral sex back in their their apartment in Memphis. And then that's all that comes of that little conversation, but it makes you question or it makes you see why Morgan was on the defense as much as he was. Holland is also asked, you know, how do you know the details regarding the murders? And he says, quote, through the news accounts, Holland's interviews seem to have less excitement. He seemed to offer less information without being probed. And so there's no overly sharing or volunteering information. Then Morgan comes back into an interrogation room after he's had his polygraph test And he's sitting there kind of waiting for what's going to happen. Now, Marshall Gaines provided the polygraph testing, and it is in his opinion that Morgan showed questionable deception on questions relating to the homicide. So as Morgan is sitting in the interrogation room for further questioning, he's far more anxious as investigators watch. He paces the room. And then... He puts tissue over the camera that is filming his activities. Investigators go back in and they talk to him about this oral sex encounter with Patrick. And he says, you know, that's the only thing we did. Um, But I'm still, you know, I'm still heterosexual. I'm still straight. And investigators ask, you know, why didn't you tell us about this encounter when we asked you about the, you know, being homosexual? And he said, but you didn't ask that question. They didn't ask if he had an encounter. They asked, was he? And he, still professing to be straight, failed to offer. So I can see where he's coming from. Don't, you know, you didn't ask me if I had homosexual activities. You asked if I was. So I can see why he was like, I wasn't going to offer that up. Morgan did, however, offer information about the night he and Bobby D'Angelo visited the Hobbs family, saying Bobby ended up taking a photo of Stevie while they were there. Morgan was asked if he ever met any of the other victims, and he said he had on the ice cream truck route. Again, I know there's repetitive questions going on, but it is it's interesting and it's and it's suggested by psychologists that you ask the same question over and over but you word it differently and see how the responses come back. Have you ever taken one of those pre-job um personality things that you, you know, 
you have to answer strongly agree, strongly disagree. You know the crap I'm talking about. That That's thanks to psychology because they're going to ask you the same question a hundred times in order to make sure not only are you A, reading the questionnaire, but B, you are not trying to deceive the employer by not remembering how you answered prior. You know what I mean? So they're going to continue to ask the same questions that they feel like either he's not telling the truth on or not giving them all of what he knows, or these are very important that we nail down. So investigators finally reveal how he did during the polygraph and they tell him, you know, you showed deception to, to a couple questions and he he starts off denying, deny, deny, deny. He says, you know, I didn't have anything to do with these killings. When asked why Gaines felt, why, you know, what, what do you think why Gaines felt that you were being deceptive? And Morgan, he simply stated, I don't deal with death very well. At this point, Morgan becomes a little more hostile after learning how the polygraph went. And when somebody becomes angry, they tend to speak more freely and they don't use that filter to be like, oh, don't say that. Or I, sh you know, you know what I mean? You've talked to somebody who's pissed off and they just say whatever comes to mind. That's how that rolls, right? So there's this, you know, they ask him what's going on. And then Morgan just unloads. He says, what do you want me to do? Lie to you? I'm going to lie. I'm going to lie. I killed them and all that other bullshit. I didn't know how he did it. And the investigator's like, who did it? And, and Morgan goes, I don't know. Whoever fucking killed them. Investigator says, well, how do you think it happened? And Morgan says, I don't know. They were just 10 feet apart from each other in the swamp, in the ditch. I don't know how they killed them. Pause. Okay. When we were talking about it, the way the boys were found, they were found approximately 10 feet from each other. That is not something I can find to have been leaked inadvertently to media. Media screws up this case highly. Gidrell had a few details about what the boys had gone through that he did not tell anybody. However, when he read rejected help from the state police somehow some way over the police scanner that reporters listen to it is said about Christopher's castration the way the boys are tied possible cause of death things that if Gitchell could hold on to those details and then a person who did commit the crime and if they said it then, you know, you're guilty, right? We don't always get to hear all of the story until after the trial because they got to hold some information, you know, close to heart. Don't, don't say a word. We need the person who did this to reveal that to us because nobody else would know if we don't tell anybody, right? As far as I'm concerned, 10 feet, the, the way the boys were found... That was not released. It was released that Michael, Stevie, and Christopher, in that order, were found, but it did not say 
the the distance from one another. But Morgan gives them the ten foot, right? In a swamp or in a ditch. And they say, you know, how do you know about this ten foot thing? And he says, because it was in the newspaper. Again, I'm not finding anything. Doesn't mean I'm not wrong, okay? He, at this point, is becoming very hostile. And due to his tissue hanging over the camera, you can't see it when you go back and watch the footage. I, I'm, I did not see the footage. Let's just put it that. I've read transcription of what occurred. And Morgan asked them eventually, you know, am I under arrest? And the detectives are like, no. I mean, we can go ahead and chalk this up to another mistake in the investigation in this case. Further questioning needed to be done after communicating with West Memphis PD about what was discovered during this current questioning. So, no, you're not under arrest, but we are going to detain you. You have that right as a police officer, right? So, Morgan was asked about giving the information relating to the castration and the arms of the victims being cut off. He reiterates that the information came from Pam Hobbs. Morgan spiraling down during this second half of the questioning, even saying, quote, well, maybe I freaked out, then blacked out, and killed the three little boys, and then fucked them up the ass or something, end quote. And the investigator's like, maybe you blacked out? And Morgan said, maybe I could have. There's no telling what happened. Morgan asked about a hypnotist at this point, and investigators they overlook this they don't answer him directly and they're honing in on this blackout theory and they say maybe you blacked out and he said well maybe and they say was it possible you could have done it and morgan says no i've never hurt anyone intentionally and investigators say maybe there's two sides to you and and morgan says maybe chris and hyde and again, he, t he says something about a hypnotist. And so investigators are saying, you know, what if the hypnotist did in fact tell him or tell you that you did black out and you killed those three kids? And Morgan says, well, I would expect you to take appropriate action then. Well, if I did kill the kids and I blacked out or something, well, I'll go to jail for it. I would expect that. Chris Morgan, however, after this, continues to deny having anything to do with the murders of Christopher Byers, Michael Moore, and Stevie Branch. Holland is brought back in for his test results of his polygraph. It's in Gaines' opinion that Brian Holland showed deception during his testing. And once they revealed this, Holland asked detectives if he showed deception on the same questions that Morgan did. Investigators told him yes. And Holland rebutted with, well, I just guessed at the answer. Holland denied having anything to do with the murders of the boys and that he rarely ever went to West Memphis. His parents can verify his whereabouts on or near the date of the murders. Holland tells investigators that he heard on the news the boys were found in a ditch. He indicated by taking his left hand to his left ankle, then his right hand to his right ankle, showing a binding position before changing both hands to the center of his legs 
and demonstrating someone being tied. So let's look at this. We have one half of this duo that is providing information you would think would only be relevant to the person who killed it and to the person investigating. Then you have the other half insinuating the exact way these boys are found. Okay. A lot of bells and whistles going off. I would want to further question this and figure out if we can get them back to West Memphis so that Gitchell and his investigators can talk to him. However, that didn't happen. These are the questions that both men showed deception on during their polygraph. Question number five, during the first week of May, did you in any way participate in causing the death of any of those boys? Both men answered no. Both men were detected as being deceptive. Question seven. Regarding the three boys found in West Memphis, do you know for sure who caused those boys to die? Both men answered no. The polygraph detected this as deception in both of them. Question nine. Are you intentionally holding back any information about those three boys? Both men answered no. The polygraph detected this as deception in both of them. However, in the final report, Gaines marks Morgan as his test being inconclusive, and he marks Holland as being deceptive. However, both men were deceptive on the same question. So I have a lot of, a lot of questions rising. Why was he, why was Morgan documented as inconclusive? If he showed deception in the same areas that Holland did, why wouldn't you, why wouldn't your opinion say both of them had been deceptive? Now, here's a little more little breadcrumbs going this way with these two men. During the pre-test interview, Morgan talked of how his parents and himself consequentially, when he lived with his parents, lived next door to one of the victims. He mentioned that the boys had also been castrated with an arm being cut off. Now, it's it needs to be reported that the Gans had no genuine idea of what occurred fully back in West Memphis. He was briefed shortly prior to the polygraph about the crimes that they were questioning them over, but he was not as thorough with his knowledge as the investigators ask, asking the questions in the interrogation room. Now, during the pretest interview with Holland, he talked about knowing details through the news, saying the boys had been castrated and that their hands and feet were bound. I found both of these remarks important. They stood out when I was reading through the conclusion of, or through the documentation or report of this polygraph testing, because they both offered information in the way that the boys were killed. We know, though, you know, it wasn't a secret that one of the boys were castrated. One of the parents, John Mark Byers, he's a very colorful character. He had said it 
several times after finding out that his son had been mutilated. So it doesn't surprise me, but it it was interesting. They were in town for four days, up to four days after the murders. However, knowing these pieces of information is um, a little questionable to me. So when I was going through this, I pulled these out because these raise the hairs on the back of my neck. I, I, I think these two men should have been further investigated. However, on May 18th, around 10 p.m., Chris Morgan and Brian Holland were able to leave following their interviews and polygraph tests. Nothing ever came from the interviews or the findings of the polygraph. The death of three boys not only shocked West Memphis, but in the coming months it would shock the nation as notoriety skyrocketed in national news outlets. West Memphis Police Department were soon under the microscope with every move they made. We may be looking at this case in hindsight, but those who watched it happen in real time saw the obvious glaring errors of Gitchell and his detectives. It doesn't matter when you were introduced to this case, in 1993 or years later, those same glaring errors are still as bold now as they were then. Most true crime cases lock in on a perpetrator or the victim. What led them to this or that outcome? But for West Memphis, in this case, it's what happened after the autopsies, funerals, and arrest. The worst is yet to come for this case and three unsuspecting teenage boys. The story sparks a fire in each and every one that has heard it, and the parents of those three boys are still locked into a ride that seemingly never ends. The West Memphis Three are still a debate and a black mark on the justice system in America, and its fire is as fueled now as it was in 1993. I want to thank you all for joining me tonight and waiting patiently as I juggled each and every bump along the way. Join me next week as we tackle the rest of this investigation and into the trial that rocked this nation and set into motion one of the greatest true crime documentaries of the genre. The surprises only get bigger from here. As always, I leave you with one last line. Ignorance breeds superstition. Much love, the true crime librarian.